0: Hello and welcome to the United Makes Football Podcast. My name is Joe and as always I'm joined by my co-host Keitel. We're also very lucky to be joined by a special guest. Greg Scott is a partner at the law firm Memory Crystal and in this role he's helped advise on the sale of West Bromwich Albion back in 2016 And more recently, together with the likes of Gary Neville, Andy Burnham and even Denise Lewis, um, to name a few of the people, he is a part of Our Beautiful Game, a campaign to reform football by creating an independent regulatory body. And like most of our guests these days, he's an Arsenal fan too, although I expect not a very happy one at present. Greg, (laughs) thank you for joining us. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you,
1: and thank you, thank you for having me on. It's a, it's an honour and a and a privilege, and um, yes, not not too much enjoying um, the football at the moment, but I guess that's the the pain of being a, a genuine supporter. And uh, we had it our own way for, for for many years, and we haven't had it our own way for a few years now, so uh, we're having to get used to that.
2: Yes, yeah, no, as you, as you mentioned, we're sort of in the mire these days. But yeah, Greg, it's, it's great to have you with us. Um, it's always a pleasure to chat with a fellow Gooner. Um, <laughs> we do tend to, to like to kick off the podcast with an icebreaker. And going off of something that Joe mentioned in your intro, uh, Memory Crystal, obviously, that's the company you work for. And when I had a look through their Twitter, I noticed that their profile image is a, a light bulb. So of course, that's usually sort of significant of like a eureka moment, or just uh, good ideas, ideas in general. Uh, but to take it more literally... When somebody isn't very handy, you might say that they can hardly screw in a light bulb. Uh, so I'm curious <laughs> to know, Greg. For me personally, IKEA furniture is probably where I tap out. That's about as much as I can handle. But I wanted to know what is your proudest DIY accomplishment? What's the well, best thing that you've ever built?
1: Goodness me, I, I am. Anyone who knows me well will will agree that I'm I'm the worst side of hopeless when it comes to anything DIY related, and that it's even more unforgivable because my father. Uh, was was brilliant at DIY and could put cupboards together and lay carpets and all, all sorts of things. Um, I think my proudest DIY moment is successfully screwing in a light bulb and it actually working when I flick the switch on. Um, I, I, I did once assemble a barbecue which took me about two hours and ended up with me uh, with me, my hands bleeding from several sort of cuts. And at the end of it all, there was this rubber tube. <laughs> Which I thought surely that's supposed to go somewhere. But uh, anyway, we used it for about 20 years and it, and it never blew up. So I guess maybe that's my proudest achievement.
2: Yeah, I'd say that counts. When it comes to screwing in a light bulb, <laughs> I've actually electrocuted myself doing it. So, uh, you know, better, easier said than done, I guess, for some. But Joe, um, how about yourself? What, what's your proudest DIY achievement?
0: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not very practical. I, I also nearly electrocuted myself at university once, um, or one of my housemates nearly electrocuted me. I should say. But, um, <laughs> but I also, um, yeah, I once uh, put a sort of desk chair together, um, and it took me, I don't know, the best part of a day. I'm, I'm awful, so I'm hoping that I'll just leave the DIY to other people in future. But <laughs> away from the DIY. Um, as you may recall earlier, I did let it slip that Greg is an Arsenal fan, much like Kaitel. But Greg, tell me, um, what are your earliest memories of supporting the Gunners and why did they become the club for you? Well,
1: actually, it's quite a funny story as to, as to as, you know, I, I, I'd love to tell a story that I was born next to the ground, you know, listening in my earliest uh, sounds were listening to the crowd roaring, but in fact, it was nothing like that. My, My father um, was and still is a proud Spurs supporter. He was actually brought up uh, in Edmonton, a stone's throw away from from, uh, White Hart Lane. Um, But his cardinal sin was to be too busy and not take me to any game. So when I was about, I guess I was about five or six years old, and I do remember this, I decided that I had to support a football team. So the Sunday Times back then didn't have a separate sports section. The sports was on the, the inside Back cover of the the main paper and I came running into my father one Sunday morning, he was having his breakfast saying I'm going to support Leeds United and he said well why on earth do you want to support Leeds United and I said and this will also make you smile because they're top of League Division 1 as it was then my father gave me a good philosophical lesson, he said well just because they're top now and this was early in the season doesn't mean they'll finish top so I thought sound advice, went back to the paper and saw that Arsenal were second so i said it's arsenal and my father never tried to stop me and and actually i to be to be truthful i wasn't a, a mad passionate supporter until my kids were born joe you know all of, you know all about uh, daniel and matthew I and then that the, they wanted to go to more matches and that got me into going more and um and that happily coincided with a with a very good run of uh of of, of uh, form for for the arsenal team that's where it all really comes from. So, really, I started going in earnest in, I guess, you know, ninety six, ninety seven, and from then. So that that was a that was a great era.
2: Yeah, um, it's interesting uh, to hear your father's warning about not just going for the team at the top of the tree. So, I think any people who are these days are considering finding a club and they see Tottenham at the top of the table, don't don't pick them yet because yeah, inevitably, <laughs> inevitably they're not going to be up there at the end of the season, yeah. according to. To Greg Carter. Well, well. What a wise man, yeah. Um, There's a nice
1: bit of symmetry there. It's, it's nice to see Leeds, uh, genuinely nice to see Leeds back in uh, back in the top flight of football, I think, where they've been absent for uh, for, for, for too long. And, I, and I'm not sure if Bielsa is a genius or a madman, but it's uh, good to watch them play anyway.
2: It is good to have them back. I mean, historically, the last time they were in the Premier League, before they came up this time, they... They used to beat Arsenal a few times. I think they cost us the league one season, and obviously we didn't win at Ellen Road this time either, but sticking on Arsenal, um, and you mentioned, Greg, that you sort of started going in the, the late 90s, but which is sort of, you know, when Arsene Wenger sort of showed up, um, mm-hmm. essentially, but it sounds like you were, you were a fan before then. So during that Arsene Wenger era, era, though, we were kind of spoiled as Arsenal fans. We sort of got to, like, have our cake and eat it too, in the sense that the football was really good to watch and it brought trophies. Um, Whereas these days were pretty cakeless, so to speak. Um, So I, I guess I was curious to know, now that the romance of yeah the prime Wenger days is really well and truly in our past, is there any spirit in the current squad or any values at the club that to this day link all the way back from now through the Wenger era to before that when you started supporting Arsenal?
1: I think that's a very good question. I, I, I would say there are certain certain values. And I think one of those is, and, and obviously it's been sorely tested the last few years, but I think one of those is actually faith in doing things the right way, in, in continuity. Um, you know, you look at, I, I suspect Chelsea are now going to have a few stable years, but you look at the sort of turnover of managers they had, before before Frank Lampard arrived in the sort of 10 years before that. I don't know how many managers they went through in those 10 years, but probably probably as many as as the years. Um, and that was never the Arsenal way. I, I think there's a there's still a strong local community spirit at Arsenal. I think they've been one of the pioneers of doing sort of voluntary and charitable work in in the community. Um, and it's just a it's an old club with a with a with a with a proud history. Um, and I guess that's what keeps people like me still going when we can go and sort of grimacing um, when we don't get the results. For me, I was never that upset if we lost when we should have won and we played lovely football. Uh, for me, what hurts more is just not, is not being at the races, is not playing well. Um, and unfortunately I think the, uh, the game against Spurs on the weekend illustrated <laughs> we, we, were just, we were just sort of out, we were out, um, outclassed in all aspects of the game tactically um, technically, uh, flair. And that's that That can hurt, I think.
2: Yeah, no, I'm right here with you suffering <laughs> as an Arsenal fan these days. Um, so, yeah, hopefully we can turn it around sooner rather than later. I guess the January transfer window is, is close. That could be a good opportunity for us to find a few quick fixes mm. maybe, but we'll see. So let's um, move on to... Well, I guess we'll go back to something that Joe had mentioned, but we'll move on to... Um, sort of the the legal side of of football and um, yeah as we mentioned earlier of course Greg you're a a lawyer and whilst football begins as a game for all of us in our childhood it's just a bit of fun once you're talking about the professional game of football in England there's so many moving parts and there's so much money at stake that inevitably there is a big legal and governing presence in the game. Um, Big clubs will have entire legal teams of their own and then the FA, PFA and LMA are some examples of the bodies charged with maintaining standards across the league so that's the state of the game today but along with our guest greg joe had mentioned that the likes of gary neville um, even david bernstein who's the former chairman of the fa have come together to drive the our beautiful game campaign forward um again to reference the campaign's agendas to sort of redistribute the huge amounts of money gifted to premier league clubs to those further down the footballing pyramid instead where the impact it can have will be greater for the holistic well-being of football in england um Beyond looking to, yeah, reverse some of this inequality when it comes to funding, the campaign is also striving to establish a new regulatory body in association with UK Parliament to stamp out any corruption that may be occurring within the currently existing bodies. So, Greg, I hope that wasn't too far off the mark as far as a gist of things, but could you tell us a little (laughs) bit more about your beautiful game? And then also, how did you, yeah, come to be involved in the campaign in the first place?
1: Well, let's start with that, maybe. Uh, So... um... David Bernstein was already uh, a client of mine uh, on on a couple of projects. Um, He, uh, you know, he's got a background in in all sorts of businesses. He was joint chief executive for many years at Pentland Group, who bought Reebok and was spectacularly successful. Um, And uh, so I already knew David, and he called me up, uh, gosh, I think it was pretty early on in the lockdown, um, totally out of the blue, said, we're putting this campaign together, um, you know, you're a sensible chap. Um, I think he didn't just want footballers and, and politicians on the panel. Um, would you like to join? And I thought about it for about uh, 30 seconds and then said, uh, yes, why not? It's uh, nothing I'd, uh, like I'd ever done before. Um, it was interesting. And I have to say the, 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 the people on that uh, steering group are, are great. I mean, they're, they're, they're a revelation. I mean, y- you would expect... Sir Mervyn King, who's former um, governor of the Bank of England, to be a smart cookie. Um, But, you know, Gary Neville holds his own and uh, comes out with some very perceptive observations. Um, And you have to take your hat off to him. He is spending an enormous amount of time uh, doing sort of voluntary and unpaid work in the sort of football ecosystem. Um, He's extremely... He gives of his time. He obviously knows his subject matter, And he's got some very interesting angles. So, you know, between having Gary Neville, people like Andy Burnham, who was, you know, a Labour minister and is now mayor of Manchester. um, And David himself, who's a who's a who's a very sort of uh, serious operator. It's been it's been it's been an eye opener. It's been it's been very interesting. And I think in terms of your summary, the only thing I take slight issue with is, is. so the idea of redistribution of wealth, we're not sort of Robin Hood's uh, sort of going up to, you know, with a, with a sort of uh, a shotgun to, to the gates at Manchester City saying you've got far too much money, give it to these poor clubs down the road. It's more about looking at football as an, as an ecosystem. Um, and, you know, wh- where, are, where are Man City getting their players from um, if they take a player from a championship side Where's that championship side getting its players from? How much are they paying for them? Can they sustain that in terms of the wages that they're paying with the revenues that they're getting? And if if the ecosystem doesn't hold and COVID, of course, has, has produced a situation where a lot of clubs are sadly very close to financial collapse, then I think you're just going to find a very small elite group of clubs spending more and more and more just to stand still. Um, And that creates a spiral for the other clubs that are hanging on for dear life, who can only squeeze 10,000 into their ground at prevailing ticket prices, don't have a global brand that they can monetize with merchandising and, and broadcasting rights, and yet have to pay higher and higher prices for the decent players. And I think what we're trying to do is say, look, the ecosystem starts with the grassroots, it goes up through the leagues to the premiership, the ecosystem has to be healthy or the clubs in the middle are going to, are going to wither and die, basically.
2: Just to hang on that and play sort of, I guess, devil's advocate for a moment. We're in a unique situation in England as a place that people look to as sort of, yeah, the birthplace of, of football, or at least of, of modern football, as we know. It. And on top of that, we have so many leagues, including um, the conference, well, what used to be known as the conference, now the National League. Um, is it natural for any country to be able to sustain that big of a sort of interest in football from the top to, you know, essentially grassroots level, Uh, you don't really see other countries with as many leagues taken as seriously as England. So I guess, yeah, the question is, is it natural in the 21st century for us to expect these clubs to be able to maintain?
1: Uh, The answer to that is, is, I mean, we did discuss this and, and I don't, I, I must confess, I don't know how the league's, uh go down through this through the sort of the different tiers in places like france and germany but certainly we did have this discussion that there is no you know no club has a divine right to exist you know there's no there's no doubt that there may have been areas of the country that that were prospered and had huge population increase during the industrial revolution and supported five or six you know reasonably top fight clubs where maybe it doesn't justify it anymore and i think so we're not saying there have to be x number of clubs But I think what we are saying is that without some care and attention and and a slightly fairer, not just fairer uh, distribution of income, but also just taking a bit more care over the grassroots and the academies and the training. um, Without that, I think you're going to see a dramatic reduction in clubs and, you know, people say, why is football different from any other competitive business? Part of the answer is that, you know, these are real communities. And in some of these communities, where there is a lot of unemployment, there isn't a lot of prosperity, the football club is really the cultural focus of, of the town. Uh, you know, the whole town comes alight on a, uh, I was going to say Saturday night, but it might equally be a Friday or a, or a Monday these days when, when their team wins. Um, and it, it, it's, a, it's a severe blow to local pride and also the businesses that, that thrive off the football clubs um, if, if they go to the wall. And that's where we see football as being a bit different from just any other business
2: yeah i can't agree more
0: yeah no i i think football is very different to most other businesses and obviously um, our beautiful game ultimately ultimately you know looking to for there to be an independent regulatory body but if that wasn't possible or if that became too much of a challenge do you have confidence greg that kind of the current bodies in place like the fa like the football league the premier league whatever in this country do you think at the very least your campaign can help these bodies improve to a point where they're more fit for purpose or in the sort of current structure of the game as you and our beautiful game see it is the only way um is the only way how football can ultimately progress in this country is with um this independent regulatory body how How important is it that it exists? Um, it, it's
1: It's not a given that you have to have an independent regulator to have a sort of a well run uh, administration of football in this country. But there's been something like twenty five years or more of government recommendations. Pushing towards reform, and in and in the last ten years, pushing towards an independent regulator, and the FA has just has just failed to respond. It's always been it's always been reactive. It's always been, um, I would say, cosmetic changes. It's got a very um, uh, unwieldy sort of system of administration, um, and so I think we came to the conclusion that it's not impossible in theory, but it probably is. It probably is in practice, and I think what, what's happened with COVID sort of illustrates it. The, I mean, you have a situation, for example, where the FA has on paper significant rulemaking powers, um, but it's effectively funded by the Premier League, and 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 the the EPL revenue is about twelve times that of, of the FA. So guess who gets to call the shots? And I, and I, so, so there's 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 soft power being exercised there, not not always in a necessarily in a in a deliberately malevolent way. We, we, we don't see you know the head of the Premier League as, as a sort of bond you know, a, a fluffy white cat impose um, <laughs> imposes will on the on the on the the governance of football but, but it doesn't make for transparent and consistent decision making and I think you saw that with Covid and, and with Project Big Picture everyone was maneuvering and everyone was sort of saying well here you go, um, National League, have a bit of money and then give us this. And it was all very piecemeal. It was a bit of a, you know, it had the feel of a bit of a land grab. Imagine if you had a regulator in there that actually was supposed to operate on a set of principles. Now you could argue about whether those principles were being fairly implemented or what weight should be given, but, but at least you'd have a starting point And that regulator would be accountable uh, to the various stakeholders in football and ultimately to Parliament if it if it turned out not to be um, fit for purpose, um, so that's that's really where we're coming from.
0: Fantastic. Well, um, obviously we wish you the best of your campaign, and hopefully, yeah, we'll we'll be hearing more about that, and maybe we'll be seeing you on a Monday night football with Gary Neville at some point. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, going away from um, our beautiful game and actually going on to a bit. Well, talking a bit about some of the work you've done with West Brom. Um, so, I know for years you've um, well, you advised Jeremy Peace, who used to be the owner, and um, yeah, you were involved in advising him on the sale of West Brom back in um, back in 2016, I believe. 2016, yeah. So, there's a, there's
1: a nice story, by the way, uh, those who are who are lawyers or or transactional advisors will get this. We had been negotiating for weeks and weeks and weeks, which is pretty typical of these sorts of deals. They're, they're complicated; they take time, and the date for signing had been pushed back again and again. And eventually, we landed on a date, and we realised it was the date of the announcement of the referendum result to okay. Brexit, basically whether or not we we left the EU. And uh, the advisors had, we had we had a chat, and we said, "Well, what happens if, if, if you know if we leave? Will that in, will that impact the deal?" And everyone said, you <laughs> know. It's not even worth talking about. It's never, it's never going to happen. Um, and I woke up on the morning, you know, putting my suit and tie on to go to the exchange meeting. Put on the BBC news to hear Dimbleby saying, "Well, the country's spoken, and the news is we're out." And I won't tell you what I then said, um, but but my wife can remember. Uh, but 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 amazingly, the deal still happened. So sorry, sorry to to cut across you and digress there. But oh so. no,
0: no, very um, infamous day now. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, obviously, um, as we've kind of established, um, away from your profession, you are a football fan as well. So, um, when you're kind of working on this, on these deals, does this add an extra element of excitement um, to what you're doing? And how different is working on or, if, or advising, I should say, on the sale of a football club compared to maybe advising on the sale of something else from a different industry?
1: It's a good question. I mean, to on one level, it's the same. You have a seller who wants to get as much money as possible. You have a buyer who, uh, and who wants to sort of walk away without any risk after the deal. You have a buyer that wants to pay as, as little as possible and have as many safeguards and, and warranties as possible. And the buyer's going to, you know, kick the tires. They're going to look at the, in this case, the player contracts. They're going to look at the, the stadium, the sponsorship agreements. So to that extent, it's, it's like any other deal but it's not like any other deal in a number of respects um i need to choose my words a little bit carefully but i think the the west brom sale was an example of a buyer that was perhaps more motivated by the status of owning a football club than the sort of the hard financial um uh, criteria i think what you're seeing of course it was a, a chinese buyer um and there were quite a few chinese buyers in town at the time what you're now seeing is is largely U.S. based funds. Uh, some of them actually based out near near where you are. I think I tell in in, in L.A. Um, but they will only buy if it makes sense. I mean, they will be running the proverbial slide rule um, over over the target to make sure that it really does work. And if the price demanded is a dollar too high, then then they won't they won't engage. So I think that 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 has changed. I think. It's also an you know it's motive, and I think the there's enormous pressure. There was enormous pressure on Jeremy Peace as owner to preserve the heritage of the club. And you know, for example, something you wouldn't see in a normal contract, there were provisions about uh, the strip. Um, you know, he he didn't want he didn't want the team playing in um, pink hoops, for example. He wanted it to remain the sort of the broad blue blue stripes. He, we wanted to make sure that. Uh, Jeff Astles who was one of their sort of iconic players I think there's a there's a a statue of him or there's something on one of the gates there that that was kept and wasn't dismantled or changed so I think you have a lot of heritage issues and of course you also had the local press wildly speculating and some of the national press usually getting it completely wrong (laughs) but who cares if it makes a good story Um, and of course the fans jumping on those stories and, and demanding answers to questions so it's a, it's, there's a bit more heat on management and owners in the sale of a football club than you know, selling your, uh, your, your widget um, factory, if you like. Um, and again, it's the, lo- it's the local community. In, in whose hands is this, is this prize asset going to be? It's also very different in the sense that, and I don't want to get too technical and too boring about this, most businesses have a, a working capital cycle. You know, They buy things, they sell things, Um, they're owed money, they have cash in the bank. And most buyers try to sort of grab a point in time and they say, well, we'll pay X, providing you're not in debt. And if you've got excess cash, you can have the cash. But if there's excess debt, we're taking it off the price. Very difficult with a football club for two reasons. One is, if you buy at a certain time of year, all the money's gone out the door in, in, in transfer fees. If you buy at another time of year, all the season ticket receipts are in and you haven't yet bought any players. So the the working capital fluctuates wildly. And the other big difference, longer term, is relegation. This is something that a lot of US investors have struggled to get their heads around because I think it's not a feature of a lot of big American sport. You know, the idea that you could pay X for a Premier League club and in a few weeks' time they might be, or, or next season they might be in the championship, and perhaps a couple of seasons after that they might be in League One, I mean... How does that work as a, as a you know planning, as a business model? So that also puts things in a, in a very different perspective.
2: It would be really interesting to have you as a fly on the wall for the Sunderland Till I Die documentary that's been going on. I'm sure you'd have a lot of opinions on the business that's been taking place up there, but um, otherwise... Um, I actually used to act... I did act for Sunderland for a couple of years as well, actually. Okay. Well, hopefully you weren't responsible for any of that. No, I'm just, I'm just joking. <laughs>
0: away from the selling of um, clubs to the, I guess, the sale of um, players. Um, So, Greg, I know, um, well, I understand that you've um, advised on the fallout of a transfer um, before. And um, given how many stakeholders are involved in football transfers, are you surprised there aren't more legal problems arising from these seemingly really complicated and often from the outside, quite murky looking deals? I mean, you only have to look... At like the, the Carlos Tevez Mascherano one from a few years ago with third-party people involved. And, I mean, look, most deals, the you know, the agent fees you hear about and stuff, yeah. Are you, are you surprised that you haven't sort of had to advise on more of these matters? And, yeah, what is just your general feeling from a legal perspective on how transfers are conducted?
1: I think uh, I get the impression. I, I'm, I'm not an expert on this. Uh, I, I mean, I, I was, uh, w- when I was... Uh, acting for West Brom there, there was a, a, I better not say who it was, but it was a fairly well-known player who I think actually came from, I think, I think West Brom bought him from Sunderland and there was an issue over appearance money and, and also sponsorship. Um, I think a lot of these issues get settled between the club chairman. So I think there are frequent bust ups, but we don't necessarily get to hear about them. I think there is also an arbitration an internal arbitration uh, system that deals with them, so you don't necessarily you're not necessarily seeing these things going to the to the high court. But I think what has been a persistent problem is is the agents. I, I'm not saying there isn't a role for agents, but I think uh, for many years there hasn't been enough regulation, and I think there's been too many disreputable agents. And I, and I think it probably still goes on where you know agents have a vested interest in in churning their assets. You you might have you know three or four star players they're not doing you any good by staying at the same club for five years. So I think the agents have a vested interest in agitating, in getting into the ear of the players and perhaps making them feel that they're not being uh, properly respected when they're perhaps not getting much first team action. And I think that's, uh, that, that is a, that is an issue. And I think, too much money in the game of football has ended up in, in i'm going to be very unpopular with some people here um has ended up in the pockets of, of agents um which could have been put to better use i can't argue with that um yeah. at the end but of that's the- a kind of that's i have to confess it's a it's a gut feel it's not it's not something i know i know in 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 you know i'm, I'm not an expert on the way that that works
2: yeah, obviously football's evolved, and you know these agents wouldn't have been around, say, thirty you know years ago, and there still would have been great players making their way through the game. I'm sure it's contributed to a lot of positives mm-hmm. from the players' side of things, taking a lot of pressure off their shoulders when it comes to decision making and whatnot. But as you alluded to as well, there's uh, maybe some dodgy, not necessarily dodgy, but maybe the, the best intentions aren't always. Um, what is being used yeah. to to make this? they well,
1: there were dodgy. I mean, let's be honest; there were some very dodgy agents. I think I do think the situation has improved. Um, you know, if, if I look at the situation now compared to what it was ten years ago, I think it it, it seems to be it, it seems to be more transparent and and more regulated than it was. At, so.
2: Yeah, Joe and I are fortunate to have become sort of friendly with a few agents through the through the podcast, and um, they they definitely are flying the flag um, in terms of how to do it the right way, um, mm. but. Moving on to, or back to, Arsenal, I guess, just before we sort of yeah, wrap things up for today. Um, we're actually, yeah, presently recording a couple of days before the Dundalk game, which is a dead <laughs> rubber, as we can't not tum- uh, come top of the group and they can't not come bottom of the group. So I'm sure that's just going to be the kids playing um, Thursdays. Yes. But moving on to the Premier League, where we sit in 15th place, having lost in the North London Derby at the weekend to Spurs, who, of course as you mentioned uh, earlier, Gregor, in first, but as, mm. as your dad referenced, um, they won't be by the time the season's over. <laughs> um, this podcast is going to be out on Friday, and that's a couple days before we face uh, one of the few teams in the league who are actually below us, along with West Brom, but, it, but it's Burnley. So Burnley have taken one point from Arsenal since 2009, home or away. And Sunday's game is at the Emirates. Typically a home fixture for Arsenal would be a good thing this season, who knows? Um, But Greg, how do you see the game going? And then sort of, yeah, beyond that, um, obviously every game at this point seems like it could be a potential catalyst to reignite our season. But on the flip side, if we don't win, do you think that Arteta's job could be at stake on the weekend if we don't pick up all three points? I guess there's a point if if we do so badly that the the board will have
1: no choice. I I think that would be very sad. I think that there's an enormous amount of work to be done with, with this Arsenal team. I think there's been a little bit of a little bit of bad luck. Um, I, I think um, you know all clubs can, can cite injuries. I think you know at the end of last season you had players like Martinelli uh, who who were really a revelation, um, scoring lots of goals. Uh, we I think David Luiz has you know he's he's a mercurial player, but I think he's he's great when he's on form. I think Party is a fantastic signing, um, although possibly was brought back. Well, it would seem he was brought back too soon against Spurs, and I worry how how long he'll be out for now. I think there's also a, a, there's a lot of talent there. I think Smith Rowe, Maitland Niles, Inketi, um, I'm yet to be totally convinced about, but um, I, I think Saka is is a star in the making. But there's a lot of young players; they're not quite there yet, but they're very nearly there. And I and I think it, just a certain something needs to click, and will be a totally Different sort of team. I, I do my one criticism of would be I think a, a slight lack of boldness. I think we know how Burnley will set up, um, but I think Arsenal really, really have to go at them. And I think that then there's a distinct lack of confidence in the team. I think there are too many players playing looking backwards rather than forwards. Um, I, I don't want to I don't want to name and name and shame them, um, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, but 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 and, and there are players playing below par at the moment as well. You know, I think uh, you know I think he's a great player, but Bellerin at the moment is is not, I don't think he's playing nearly at his best. I think Xhaka is um, is just playing far too many square balls. William's been a disappointment uh, apart from the first game. But these things can change. Um, you know, perhaps perhaps we've almost got too many options and Arteta just needs to needs to settle down, settle down the team. So I'm not despairing just yet and I think the Arsenal way is to stick with the manager. I like Arteta. I think he's... Um, I, of course, the other tragedy is Ozil, really. I, I mean, I, I, I will never quite understand how someone that gifted has ended up not even being um, registered. But I also understand managers have to manage um, and, and not be dictated to by, by by players. So I think there's a whole host of factors that have that have put Arsenal where they are now. I am quietly confident i mean i'm not deluded i think there's a lot of work to do um but i don't think um i don't think we're going to finish in, in in 15th place let's put it that way
2: no hopefully <laughs> hopefully we can climb at least at least into the top half of the table yeah i mean we might end up being relegated and get into the champions league i don't know if that's ever happened before <laughs> i mean champions league football would be nice i don't know about championship football but um yes let me hang on to something quickly and inevitably any any Ars- or any podcast that talks about Arsenal and talks about Ozil, it, you know, everyone's had these conversations. But I guess, considering your background and the fact that you were talking about um, power of agents and whatnot, what do you make of the Ozil situation from, I guess, sort of like a legal standpoint? And, and just, is there a way that this could have been avoided? Um, is all of the, it seems like all of the power is in Ozil's hands. He's getting as much money as he was ever going to get bar appearance fees and, you know, assist fees, whatever those bonuses are. And he hasn't lifted a finger. Um, how has the, how has modern football allowed this to happen at any club?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I, and it's difficult. I mean, obviously the, Ozil has a contract uh, and in that contract, Arsenal agreed to, to pay him and Ozil agrees to make himself available to play. Where I think, these contracts fall down. If you compare them, if you look at a normal employment contract, as well as turning up for work, you've actually got to be able to do your job and an employer can fire you. If you don't, if you frequently turn up late or, you know, you keep pressing the wrong button and losing the company loads of money, you'll get fired. It's very difficult to say to a foot. And I'm not suggesting this is even the case with Ozil, but you can't really say to a footballer, you're not good enough. Therefore you've breached your contract. I mean, We knew what we were buying. It's up to the club and and the coaching staff and the management as to what position to play them and where they fit in. I think, unfortunately, um, he, yeah, I I suspect Özil is very opinionated. I think he, I think he's difficult. I think he doesn't. I think he feels disrespected if someone criticises him, and I think there's possibly a little bit of petulance there. And I think that has been encouraged by the money that has been lavished on him. And, and let's not forget, he's a, you know, he is a, a world class and recognized as such um, player. Whether it, was, whether it was ever really right to bring someone like Ozil into the Premier League is, a, is, a, is another question. But Arsenal were the team that did it. And if, if they think it didn't work out, then I guess it's, I guess it's their problem.
2: Yeah, it was fun for a little bit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, as my, as my son, Daniel, uh, Joe, you know, Daniel very well, often pointed out when people were criticising Ozil, he'd say, well, you're, you're criticising him, but actually he's got the most assists in, in the premiership. And I think that was part of the problem with Ozil. The, 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 the stats don't lie. And yet somehow people felt he wasn't pulling his weight. And that's maybe partly to do with the kind of blood and guts tempo of, uh, of the premiership as opposed to, the, to uh, European football.
0: Yeah, I've um, I've definitely heard Daniel um, relate yeah. his stats to me before, and yeah, I mean, yeah, from a Spurs fans' perspective, it's been great that he's not been playing, yeah, because he's obviously obviously a fantastic player, but yeah, there's clearly something not right there, and um, probably for the best. You get yes. asap um, as yeah. things are going on, but I do have um, one final question for you, Greg, and I'll end on a very serious um, question. I call it a moral dilemma, perhaps. So, um. If Daniel Levy ever came to you wanting advice on a legal matter for Spurs, would you be prepared to help out and advise him? Or instead, would you have to follow your gooner instincts and sabotage Spurs in some way or another?
1: (laughs) No, I'm sure I wouldn't be able to... um you know, I'd have to make a little joke probably after he'd signed my engagement letter and agreed to pay my <laughs> exorbitant fees, but no, of course, um, you know, it, I would, it, it's, it's a job and uh, we can all, I think football is a, is, is, is great for banter and conversation, but you know, let's, let, let's get real. Um, if, so, if, so, if he came to me and said, I want you to act for Spurs, I'd, I'd very happily do it. Um, take a lot of stick from a lot of people um but 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 actually on on a similar theme and i'm probably going to get killed for saying this our founding partner at our law firm uh so as you said memory crystal peter crystal i hope you won't mind me saying this passionate leeds united supporter and we were interviewing someone for quite an important role this is many years ago and peter said so he goes oh lovely goes what what team do you support and uh the guy said manchester united and he went oh no (laughs) And he started having a go at this guy. And afterwards, I said to Peter, I said, Peter, we're trying to recruit him, not scare him. <laughs> but it, it ran so deep that I think for him, football transcended everything. So the, the passion is good, but yeah, let's keep a sense of perspective.
0: Very um, very noble of you. I think, yeah, well, I'm not. I'm obviously not a lawyer. I don't know what I'm doing. I'd probably say don't. don't ask people to advise you. But yeah, I don't know. Working for Arsenal in some form, I, I don't think I could do it. But you know, ne- I'd never act
1: for Chelsea, though. Don't
0: yeah, worry. We can all agree on that. That's what we always say. The one thing Kaito and I can agree on is we both hate Chelsea. So that's (laughs) something that's good. Um, But that actually, um, that brings us to the end of um, the interview today. So um, firstly, a big thank you to my co-host Kaito. And then obviously a massive thank you to Greg Scott too for being such a great guest. Um, Greg. Thank you. Oh oh no, thank you. Um, What is the best way for our listeners to keep up to date with everything that you're getting up to?
1: Well, on the our beautiful game campaign, there is a there is a website um, ourbeautifulgame.co.uk, and we will be updating that with what we're trying to do at the moment is 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 find a path through a very bu- busy parliamentary schedule to get a private members' bill to, to to really get the ball rolling in earnest for an independent regulator. I think we recognise that uh, government's got a few other weighty issues on its hands at the moment. Um, what with COVID and Brexit and all the rest of it. So that may, that may take some time. Um, we've had a, 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 a meeting with the, 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 the Football Supporters Association and found common ground on a lot of items that, that, um, that they're backing. So we're really just trying to build support, build consensus, drive it through parliament and uh, go on the website and have a look at some of the, the stats and, and, um, and some of the updates. And I guess read the sports pages because there's going to be quite a lot more on this. I think in the next uh, next few months.
0: Brilliant. Well, yeah, as we said, we'll be keeping an eye on it, and I'm sure our listeners will be too. Um, finally, um, for our listeners, if you've enjoyed this and you want to follow us, we're on social media. We're, we're at United Mates FP on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, even too. And you can subscribe to us on YouTube. Just type in United Mates Football Podcast. That is all for now. Thank you very much and goodbye.